Hello, this is Bob Wilson, Associate Professor of Geography at Syracuse University and host of New Books in Geography. My guest today is Finus Dunaway, author of the recent book, Seeing Green, The Use and Abuse of American Environmental Images. Finus is Associate Professor of History at Trent University in Ontario, and he has published in journals such as Environmental History and American Quarterly. Finus's previous book, Natural Visions, The Power of Images in American Environmental Reform, examined the use of environmental images from the early to mid-20th century. In many ways, Seeing Green is a sequel to that book, exploring environmental images from the period just before Earth Day to the present. Some of the iconic films and images he examines include the crying Indian public service announcement from the 1970s, the nuclear power thriller The China Syndrome, and Al Gore's famous documentary about global warming, An Inconvenient Truth. In both his books, Finest does a splendid job not only analyzing these images, but arguing persuasively for how these images have sculpted popular understandings of the environmental crisis and shaped the development of American environmentalism. So, Finus, welcome to New Books in Geography. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Uh, well, you've now written two books on environmental images, uh, particularly environmental images in the United States. So how did you become so interested in this subject? You know, it was uh, sort of a confluence of, of somewhat random factors, some of them personal and some intellectual. Um, I, As an undergraduate, I've been very involved in, in student environmental activism in North Carolina, but never had heard of environmental history as a, you know, a field of scholarship. And when I went to graduate school at Rutgers University, uh, I was, you know, exposed to some of the writings of William Cronin and Donald Worcester and other environmental historians. And I found it completely eye-opening to know that there was this field of history out there that was exploring how nature had contributed to American history. Simultaneously, I found myself drawn to the history of visual culture and the history of photography and the ways in which images play an important role in American life. And um, just found myself connecting the two, wondering why there had not been really any studies that were at the intersection of these two really exciting interdisciplinary areas of inquiry. Um, Bill Cronin came to Rutgers uh, during my first year at graduate school and gave his Trouble with Wilderness talk before it was published a few months later. And the whole time he talked, you know, he didn't have any images in his talk. He, he mentioned maybe Thomas Cole very briefly in the Hudson River School. Um, but I, I kept thinking about Ansel Adams as he was sure. talking. And, there, and it was one of those moments, I have to say, that it was, you know, sort of close to an epiphany intellectually to uh, have this these currents, you know, that I was interested in intellectually going on. And then to hear, you know, this this fascinating, uh, marvelous talk by Bill Cronin. Um, and so I left that room thinking more and more about Ansel Adams and about the Sierra Club and landscape photography. And that is what led to my dissertation, which, you know, ultimately became Natural Visions. Um, with this book, I uh, wanted to, as you said, you know, carry the story forward chronologically, but also to look at a wider set of media images and how they've played a crucial role in defining but also delimiting American environmental politics. Yeah, and I want to get to that subject of both helping to define uh, uh, environmental politics and and I don't know, in some ways popularize environmentalism, but also really some of the drawbacks of some of these images. And so hopefully we can talk about that later. Now, it's interesting you bring about environmental history and uh, its use or not use of images, because I think many scholars, whether they're in history or geography or so on, if they are interested in the state of the planet uh, or issues such as deforestation and climate change, well, they would probably go to studying natural science or they would perhaps study policy and government legislation. So why do you think that those um, uh, those of us who are concerned about the environment, whether they're scholars or not, so for those of us concerned about the environment, why should they be concerned about environmental images as well? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think there, you, first I'll just answer as to why there's been sort of less attention to these issues. And I think it's a wider problem within, certainly within historical scholarship, maybe less so within ge geography, which I think has maybe had a bit more of a tradition of looking at images. But historians, I think, as a whole, um, to speak in very general terms, have been reluctant to look at images as historical actors. They tend to look at images as illustrations, as texts that merely reflect 
what's going on in the wider historical context. So they're they're not um, uh, they're sort of mirrors of historical change rather than being active rhetorical agents that are contributing change. And uh, I think that kind of general statement applies to a whole uh, wide range of, of historical scholarship. Of course, it's changed, and there's many important examples of scholars who've integrated images in a more kind of active, productive manner in their interpretations of the past. But why should we care as, say, historical geographers or environmental historians about images? Um, I think it's because if we want to understand um, how uh, popular framings of issues have occurred, the ways in which uh, public debate has been shaped uh, through a wide variety of texts that, you know, certainly include scientists, certainly include activists. Uh, we need to also open it up to the question of popular images because this is, you know, in a, a culture that's increasingly uh, defined by its relationship to visual images uh, and to mass media. If we want to understand how popular understandings of these images are uh, popular understanding of these issues are formed, then images are absolutely crucial to that project. It seems that in uh, uh, kind of the modern context we we live in, that where we're saturated with media, is that the uh, one of the primary ways that we are, learn about or are exposed to nature, broadly defined, is through these images. And so our experience is, is often quite quite mediated, be it looking at wildlife or, in your case, kind of looking at... Um, environmental issues or environmental problems. So there's this uh, sense that our that our connection to the world is highly mediated through these images. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and that's certainly the case if you want to look at the history of wildlife film, the history of landscape photography, the, the examples of wild landscapes, many of which are very remote and, you know, sort of detached from everyday life. A lot of the popular connection uh, and sense of uh, popular feelings that are formed for those landscapes are done in an imaginative way. They're done in, in a way that is, as you say, mediated by, by images. Um, but also in the way we understand everyday environmental issues, many of these are also defined, uh, certainly for a mass public, certainly in broader terms, uh, through, through media images. Yeah. Um, your last book, Natural Visions, looked at environmental films such as the classic New Deal movie by Per Lorenz, The Plow That Broke the Plains. Um, and then you also looked at the uh, coffee table books that were so common in the 1950s through the 1970s uh, that were produced by, say, the Sierra Club of Wilderness Areas. Certainly Ansel Adams did a, a number of those as well. Um, in many ways, it seems that seeing green starts where natural visions left off. So what sort of images do you open the book with in the first few chapters? Yeah, so you, you're absolutely right that there's a chronological connection between the two. But what I wanted to do with, with this book is also look at a wider variety of media forms and uh, not just what images were produced by conservation groups like the Sierra Club, but also how environmental meanings have been formed uh, often not by environmentalists themselves, but by uh, mass media organizations and institutions. So I begin the book with uh, looking at how it is that radioactive fallout and pesticides in the 1960s uh, take on new meanings, often uh, quite different from a dominant sort of Cold War view of military technology and of the chemical control of agricultural landscapes. Uh, and this is a way to show that images uh, have a lot of productive potential for environmentalists, have a power to represent scientific ideas, to question uh, dominant ideas of uh, scientific certainty, of expertise, uh, a sense of, uh, of, of safety that these technologies and chemicals had uh, previously evoked. And one of the key themes that emerges in that chapter and that continues throughout the book is um, the, the notion of environmental crisis representing a gradual accumulation of threats over time. And here I draw on some of the work of the literary critic Rob Nixon uh, in his, his wonderful book, Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor, uh, to talk about the difference between, say, a vision of thermonuclear apocalypse, which is a very sudden notion of catastrophe, of nuclear war wiping out the world, uh, to thinking about the ongoing gradual accumulation, an accretive disaster, a form of violence through strontium-90, through the accumulation of DDT in ecosystems, in wildlife, and in human bodies. Uh, and so I look at such examples as 
media campaigns conducted by SANE, the Committee for a SANE Nuclear Policy, which featured ads like the Dr. Spock is Worried ad, uh, the very famous uh, and influential pediatrician and childcare expert uh, describing uh, in both visual and textual ways uh, the threats that he saw represented by strontium-90. And these examples, uh, I think, provide the backdrop to understanding uh, popular environmentalism as it emerged uh, around Earth Day 1970 and beyond. Um, the book actually began, when I, when I first started this project, I originally conceived it as a study of the 70s uh, and environmental images in the 70s. There was a lot of scholarship at the time that was coming out and still is about that decade as a really pivotal, pivotal and overlooked moment in modern American history. And certainly for environmentalism, the 70s is. Um, but as I worked on the 70s uh, material, I found myself sort of drawn simultaneously backward in time and forward in time. And so I wanted to understand in this first chapter the ways in which uh, certain notions of ecology become popularized, certain ways of seeing um, that I think you can see emerging in the 60s really provide you know crucial backdrop to the, the Earth Day and the ways in which environmentalism uh, is formed uh, throughout the 70s. And even in our own time, I, you know, I point to some of the, the durability of some of these motifs, the recurring uh, issues of the child, the vulnerable child, and the appeals to individual responsibility and other issues that I see uh, happening in the 60s and 70s certainly uh, exist, you know, and become even more uh, emphasized over time uh, with Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth providing kind of the, uh, an ideal way to sort of see these issues, how they play out today. It seems like one of the real challenges of, of uh, creating environmental images and Creating images that may galvanize the public to take some sort of action because of some sort of ecological threat is that you say that so many of these problems are, are unfold slowly um, and are difficult to visualize. Like you can imagine a nuclear bomb going off, but the nuclear fallout is invisible. Uh, pesticides, maybe you can watch them being sprayed, but the way they kind of move through the environment and through both uh, plants and then and through animal and human bodies, that's not visible either. And the same thing with climate change, a kind of a slow unfolding process. And so particularly with environmental energy, you have a set of challenges there of, of displaying the problem that maybe with other sort of political or social or cultural issues you don't have as much. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think it's, it's a really important problem for scholars as well as activists to think about uh, in terms of how they represent these issues to wider publics. Um, looking at the same campaigns was really interesting to me because when they first announced their existence as an organization, they put out an ad in the New York Times. It's a full page ad. And it talks about we are facing a danger like no other danger that's ever existed before. And it's this, you know, long description of the dangers of strontium-90, of radioactive fallout accumulating in the environment. The whole ad is text. It's literally a whole page of, of, of text being presented. No, you know, no wow. visual whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they're, they're very, um, Hope, you know, hoping to galvanize public support and they sort of want to be media savvy. So they hire a communication consultant to sort of uh, look at whether or not this ad was effective. And he says to them, you know, this is a complete failure because you've, you've not provided the, uh, the readers of the New York Times with any kind of image to latch on to. You've, you've hit them with a whole full page of text uh, that doesn't really draw in public attention. Uh, and so for a while they wrestle with, you know, how do we find a visual way to represent this slow violence of radioactive fallout? And at first they use the mushroom cloud, which, you know, had been the sort of iconic image of, of the nuclear bomb, had often been celebrated for its sublime qualities uh, in ways that often distracted public attention from radioactive fallout because the sublimity of the mushroom cloud uh, provided the spectacle and, and a form of aesthetic pleasure uh, in the technological power of the United States. Uh, but they start getting letters from uh, members of the organization saying to them, look, that doesn't work either. What you need to do is focus on an image of a child because a child provides a very visible, very tangible way to understand um, the human dimensions of this threat. 
And that's when you start to see these ads like the Dr. Spock ad that I mentioned. Uh, there's another one that comes out. Uh, your children's teeth contain strontium 90, yes. which shows three smiling kids, you know, with, 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 uh, uh, pearly whites uh, being displayed. And this is actually put out by a group of dentists who were involved with saying, uh-huh. uh, were uh, noticing um, the, were aware of this, the study being done of baby teeth uh, by Barry Commoner and other scientists in St. Louis, the Committee for Nuclear Information, who were gathering uh, children's teeth when they fell out and, and realizing that there was strontium 90 there, which suggested that it was becoming um, accumulating in, in children's bodies and thus posing a, a long-term risk of, of cancer or other health problems. Uh, and so the child, particularly the white child, sure. becomes the key figure to represent uh, what, you know, the invisible threat of fallout. And it provides a way to, you know, really engage with some of the dominant visual motifs of uh, post-war culture, this sort of focus upon the child, upon uh, the affluent uh, white family in the suburbs, the yes, sense exactly. of progress and prosperity. All of that, I think, is tapped into by these images in a, in a very powerful way to suggest uh, that there are problems with the way in which America is relating to the environment, with the problems with the way in which the Cold War is being conducted, problems with the uh, widespread dismissal of fallout fear. There's an effort by government experts to suggest that um, the bounds of public debate should not include this element of fear, that there's a sense, you know, I, I talk about the emotional climate of the period as one uh, that's about trust of experts, about a denial yes. of the permeability of the body. Uh, all of these ideas are being challenged uh, through the figure of the child by saying, and by many other environmental groups over time. And I see that as laying, you know, really powerful, establishing a powerful visual motif that's then uh, recurs uh, over the history of, of popular environmentalism. And that seems to those images seem to be uh, echoing or reinforcing some of the ideas that Rachel Carson puts forward in Silent Spring. I mean, she's trying to say that um, our bodies are connected to um, connected to the environment in very profound ways and what we do so the environment will make its way into our bodies, but she's doing that through her very evocative writing. But it seems like these images are doing the same sort of thing, that, that, that the people who are creating them are finding these really kind of poignant images to maybe carry some of the same sort of message to a, maybe even a wider public. Absolutely. And, and Carson is, is very relevant uh, to the story, obviously, uh, in terms of popular environmentalism, but also in terms of her engagement with the media. And one of the things that interests me is that, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the misogyny of the scientific establishment, the misogyny of the chemical industry, which, and there's all kinds of examples of this, where they tried to dismiss Rachel Carson for being uh, hysteric, uh, for being overly emotional, uh, for not, you know, uh, engaging in the detached language of rationality and scientific expertise. And what I found in looking at the reception of Silent Spring is that certainly there's plenty of examples that you can point to of those kinds of things happening, but that Carson was really quite uh, effective in engaging with the popular media, particularly, uh, and I use the example of a CBS Reports episode. Yes, CBS classic Reports, one, yes. Yeah, which is sort of like 60 Minutes in some ways, you know, a TV news documentary program that featured a whole hour-long broadcast about Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, about the controversy of this book. And what's interesting, if you look at the way TV critics who there was who wrote uh, extensively about this particular episode, is that they talk about how Rachel Carson was able to present herself not as overly emotional or in some sort of stereotypical feminine fashion, but rather as someone who... Um, you know, displayed a great deal of restraint uh, of sort of, sci- of conveying scientific knowledge, but it was the images in the show which showed, you know, birds suffering, fish dying, uh, other kinds of pesticide threats being revealed visually. The pictures help provide that kind of emotional connection for the audience. And so you have this interesting pairing or fusion of emotions and rationality of scientific expertise and visual spectacle in that episode. And I argue that that's another important theme we see throughout uh, the the visual history of popular environmentalism is that uh, emotions and rationality, we shouldn't view these um, as completely separate domains. It's it's, it's often framed in theories of the public sphere and kind of in in everyday life, I suppose, we often 
think of, um, of these as being uh, antithetical to one another. But I see in popular environmentalism a, a very creative effort, at times effective, at times not, uh, to fuse uh, science with emotions, to take facts and feelings uh, and put them together often through, uh, through visual culture and through creative use of media. And again, you see that happening with the sane ads, you see that happening with Rachel Carson uh, and the reception of Silent Spring. And so that provides, uh, you know, I think an important foundation for uh, the explosion of ecological concern and environmental um, uh, environmental ideas and images uh, in the period that follows. Yeah, and let's move to that because certainly you get to the, I mean, you have Rachel Carson's Science Spring coming out in the early 60s, but by 1970, in the early 1970s, you have an explosion of concern about the environment and a proliferation of environmental images. I mean, last month was the 45th anniversary of the first Earth Day, um, and so what are some of the images that emerged during that time, not necessarily just right at Earth Day, but really in that moment of those few years around 1970, that you see as, as really, uh, uh, really important? Yeah, well, there are a few that I, that I focus on. Uh, and, you know, in the book, uh, what I try to do is with – I divided the book up into uh, somewhat shorter chapters than you will often see in, in a work of scholarship. So yes, I noticed that. Uh, 15 chapters across the book, uh, most of them kind of short to medium length that focus on one particular image or sort of a group of images or a kind of a visual motif that forms so that uh, I can try to really kind of zoom in on the particulars of the image, but also hopefully present this in a wider context, you know, a sense uh, of, of broader change that's happening over the decades. Uh, and around Earth Day 1970, uh, I focus on some that, that others, you know, have looked at as well, such as the Santa Barbara oil spill, where you see uh, images of, of marine life and uh, seals and sea lions uh, suffering you know, in the petroleum-induced uh, muck. Uh, you, I look at Earthrise and other whole Earth images that emerged from NASA around that period, which, you know, I think are important in many ways, including uh, – promoting even the idea of an Earth Day rather than, say, Ecology Day or Environment Day. There's a sense of focus on the fragility and the vulnerability of the planet. Uh, I think that planetary – this is just jumping ahead of it, but I think that planetary sentiment becomes more pronounced over time, particularly when you get toward Earth Day 1990 uh, and even into our own time. There's a, a kind of a, a more of a heightened sense of planetary peril uh, rather than simply local or national peril that we see, I think, around Earth Day 1970 more. Um, but the other images that I look at are gas mask uh, pictures of particularly women and children wearing gas masks as a way to represent the threat of air pollution, which is, uh, once again, often framed in this time as a long-term threat, uh, a different form of apocalypse that's that's emerging, not not from the nuclear bomb or nuclear warfare, but from uh, the gradual accumulation of pollutants and toxicity in the environment. I look at the Pogo uh, poster, uh, and there's a whole backstory of that that I was able to find out about. People uh, are familiar, many people are familiar with the, the quotation, we have met the enemy and he is us, which is taken from Walt Kelly and his cartoon character Pogo. Uh, but I found that there was a whole kind of interesting backstory as to when the quotation emerged and uh, when it became part of uh, offering an env specifically environmental message. And then as you mentioned before, I look at the Crying Indian, the public service announcement done by the anti-litter group uh, Keep America Beautiful. And I close that part of the book by looking at the recycling logo, um, arguably the most you know ubiquitous image in daily life. You know, something that's encountered today on all kinds of packages, on blue bins, on the on the curbs, uh, and in other uh, public spaces. That also emerges around Earth Day 1970. And I use these images to show how during this period we see. Um, universal vulnerability, a sense of universal danger represented by the environmental crisis with the gas mask providing the prime emblem of that, and also a sense of individual responsibility, uh, a sense that personal action uh, can provide uh, the proper solution to these ongoing escalating threats. And that fusion of the universal vulnerability and individual responsibility, again, is something that Changes over time, but but also is something that's quite durable and recurring uh, in the history of popular environmentalism. Yeah, and I was really struck by that theme in the book, 
Um, and it certainly resonates with sort of my understanding of environmentalism over the past uh, few decades. And I see it, that sort of sentiment re- re- reflected very strongly in the students that I teach, um, uh, the sense that the way that we deal with environmental problems is just by recycling into these individual uh, solutions, particularly taking care of, of garbage. And as, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, you just mentioned this, this classic Ad Council commercial from the 70s, The Crying Indian, which uh, depicts – well, I'll let you describe it in – well, why don't you describe that that commercial? And, um, I'm old enough to remember – be it boy, I remember seeing it on TV all the time growing up in the 1970s. But some of, some of the younger audience uh, who are listening to this podcast may not remember it. But so can you tell a little bit about this kind of pivotal commercial and maybe the message that it was trying to convey? Yeah, so it's it's 1971. It's basically a year after the first Earth Day. And uh, the Ad Council, which is the preeminent public service announcement firm in the United States, uh, in conjunction with Keep America Beautiful, which is this anti-litter group, uh, uh, coincidentally formed by uh, beverage and packaging corporations, um, who have been around for a while, and they've done a number of campaigns featuring Susan Spotless, who's this white girl wearing a white dress and a white headband, who does a finger wag to tell her parents not to litter. Um, something happens right after Earth Day 1970 where the Ad Council and Keep America Beautiful realize that the uh, emergence of environmental protest is often targeting them as particularly culpable for a whole range of environmental problems, not just litter, but also uh, the uh, escalating use of disposable packaging, uh, the kind of wastefulness that that implies. Um, and they are concerned. They're actually quite uh, uh, petrified of the emergence of environmental protest. And so they devise this campaign that's uh, very, you know, I, I call it a sly form of propaganda. What they, they do is they tap into the countercultural interest in the figure of the Indian, which is becomes really important within the counterculture to hold up this idea of the ecological Indian, which has existed in the United States before, but I think becomes you know, particularly significant during this period. Uh, and the critique of progress that's offered by the counterculture as well. And they do it through this campaign that features Iron Eyes Cody, who it turns out was actually an Italian American <laughs> yes, yes, yes. who, uh, you know, spent his whole life, uh, you know, to quote Bill Deloria here, literally playing Indian, not mm-hmm. simply on screen, but in his everyday life, even wrote books um, talking about native languages and the importance of native languages and, you know, sort of created this fictional uh, autobiography for himself. So the commercial features Iron Eyes Cody uh, in a uh, birch bark canoe going through water that seems very peaceful and tranquil and clean. But over time, as he keeps paddling along, it starts to, there's signs of filth that emerge and pollution. And the music is effects. building as well. Yeah. I mean, to a crescendo. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, the, the climax to the commercial is when he brings, he gets himself out of the water and he walks toward a freeway where there's, you know, cars zooming by. Uh, and, you know, the most uh, uh, poignant moment of the commercial comes at the end when someone throws fast food wrappers uh, that land, you know, right uh, at the feet, uh, right at his feet of, of his of his moccasins. And he um, then a single tear emerges on uh, flows, you know, ever so slowly down his face. Uh, and the narrator says that uh, some people have a deep abiding respect uh, for the natural beauty that was once this country. And some people don't. People start pollution. People can stop it. Uh, and so you have this evocation of the figure of the ecological Indian. You have uh, the sense of the past coming into the present. I describe Iron Eyes Cody or the crying Indian here as a ghostly figure who's, who's coming back to see what has happened uh, to his land. Uh, and he's powerless. All he can do is simply cry. But the viewer can take action. And the action is one of individual action of picking up of litter. Uh, environmentalists were... Um, had to a certain extent supported Keep America Beautiful. They were concerned about the, the problem of litter as well. They had been on the board of the organization. But um, many environmental groups soon uh, ceased their association. They resigned from the board 
of uh, Keep America Beautiful because uh, they believe that the organization is deflecting attention from corporate responsibility, putting all the focus on the individual. And in fact, the organization goes on to lobby against bottle bills, which is a, a big environmental issue in the 70s, an effort to return to a time not so long before where packages were primarily re- returnable, reusable rather than disposable. Uh, and so they there's uh, a critique that's forming among environmental activists of the ways in which their movement is being defined for them by uh, mass media institutions. And that's something I see emerging uh, soon after Earth Day 1970 and continuing on uh, into our own time uh, to, to varying degrees. Uh, sometimes I think there's a, a greater acceptance of this discourse by environmentalists, environmentalists themselves, and other times there's more overt criticism. Um, one final point I'll make about that is, is that it's, there's an interesting tension in this period where you see, in certain ways, it's the last gasp of liberal reform in the late 60s and early 70s, where you see the environmental regulatory state forming, where you see the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the establishment of the Environmental Protection Agency. And so, to a certain extent, this seems like a paradox, right? That you have all these popular images like the Pogo poster, like the Crying Indian campaign that are appealing to individual responsibility to solve environmental crisis. While at the same time, the government is expanding its efforts to uh, show that the state can improve citizen lives uh, through regulation of industry and other forms. And I try to suggest that rather than seeing this as a contradiction or a paradox, that in an interesting way, it actually they actually complement one another because in both cases you have environmental crisis defined as a specific entity, as the environment is something that's detached from social relations, is detached from issues of power uh, and social justice. So whether it's through you know the neutral efforts of the state, you know, at state experts going in to clean up the problem, or of individuals playing their part. Uh, in both cases, the environment is seen as something that's separated from other social conflicts of the time. Uh, and in that way, I think this kind of um, uh, delimits the, the effectiveness of environmentalists in tr- some of whom tried to make connections to other social movements, some of which tried to keep a focus on power relations in society and, and especially the role of corporations. Um, I think that these this complementary uh, sort of fusion of the personal and the state uh, provides a way to, to really limit uh, that kind of potential of environmentalism uh, over time. And, and so that's one way I try to reread the period of the early 70s, which you know a lot of the scholarship on the 70s focuses on a defining moment when America moved from becoming more liberal to more conservative. And I, I see those kind of discourses uh, at play in an earlier moment. Uh, and that they're not so 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 cut off from one, or they're not so opposed to one another. They actually are, you know, as I said, complementary. And I think that's one of the more uh, really fascinating and provocative uh, aspects of of the book that you see this individualizing tendency emerging at a time where we also see it as kind of a high point of kind of classic New Deal, Great Society liberalism. Um, and, and creating the, the environmental state. But the segue into sort of the last kind of third of the book, where, which you title Green Goes Mainstream, at least how I see it, how I read it, is that it's about the production and, and circulation of these environmental images during, uh, what you talk about during a period of neoliberalism or the neoliberal era. Um, not necessarily all of our readers is probably familiar with the term neoliberalism. So can you explain what you mean by neoliberalism? Yeah, I mean, the way it's often talked about by David Harvey and, and others uh, who, who've discussed this issue is to think about neoliberalism as uh, the revival of uh, 18th century classical liberalism in our own time, uh, which has been uh, defined by an effort to uh, focus on um, uh, the deregulation, uh, the sort of scaling back of state involvement. Uh, often, in terms of economic terms, this has uh, led to um, you know retrenchment of the welfare state, of rising uh, economic inequalities, uh, and so it's a distinction from you know sort of in common everyday terms when we talk about liberalism, we usually mean here. Uh, 
the Democratic Party or perhaps the left wing of the Democratic Party uh, that still uh, wants to promote state action to improve citizen lives. Neoliberalism puts faith in the market as, you know, sort of the ultimate arbiter of human existence. The market is what uh, is actually more, in their view, democratic instrument uh, for bringing about uh, social progress, uh, for leading to, you know, greater experience of freedom and prosperity. And, you know, historians, uh, for the most part, have been reluctant to use the term um, uh, to define this period. And I think particularly within, say, political history, um, you know, while I think it's important, of course, to look at the conflicts between, say, Democrats and Republicans, between liberals and conservatives, I think there is something that neoliberalism offers us. It offers us a way to see, you know, despite the real partisan divide uh, that we see throughout this period, to see what's some commonality uh, and, a, and a sort of a, a belief and a faith uh, in the market that I think crosses uh, not all of these, you know, political, not the full political spectrum. Certainly there is still, you know, uh, a left, uh, a small, uh, perhaps left that's articulating other values. But I think that, uh, that neoliberalism provides us with a way to understand uh, the increasing dominance of the market uh, and faith in, uh, in its ability to, uh, to lead to social progress and to solve social problems. How does this dominance and faith in the market, um, how is that manifested in the environmental images that you look at the era or help codify this ethos of neoliberalism? Yeah, so I, um, I look at a number of, of images that um, focus on questions like the garbage crisis uh, from the, the 1980s. Sure. Um, and so that through the the very clever effort of the plastic industry to take the recycling logo uh, and use it for its own purpose by adding those little numbers that are uh, supposed to they, they signify different resin codes, uh, but they take the yeah, good luck if you can figure that out. <laughs> exactly. Well, and they signal to the consumer that these this is you know. Uh, something that is recyclable and will be recycled and perhaps is even made out of recycled materials themselves, uh, which is often not the case. Uh, and so there's a way in which I think the plastic industry in particular has taken um, the rising public concern about ecological issues uh, and really been able to exploit that uh, to continue unsustainable practices. So the kinds of examples I look at include those. Um, but also, I look at the uh, the case of Alar on apples, which is this 1989 concern that emerges around um, – it's a growth regulator that's applied to apples that uh, it's found to be one of the most carcinogenic substances in the American food supply. And the Natural Resources Defense Council, a mainstream environmental group, uh, creates this campaign uh, around – it's supposed to actually be around chemicals and pesticides in the food supply – more generally, but Alar becomes, you know, the dominant one that's extracted from their report that becomes the focus of this media effort to raise concern about the, the threats, particularly to children's bodies. So we see the vulnerable child returning again uh, in the 1980s. Meryl Streep, uh, the famed actress, becomes the celebrity spokesperson for the cause. And this example, I think, is really important because it shows us um, how difficult it is for environmentalists to talk about systemic risk. They're very able to, to isolate, you know, a particular problem. Uh, back in the early 70s, in the aftermath of Rachel Carson's book, um, you see the ban of DDT happening in 1972. And there's a sense that even if you're able to raise concern about long-term escalating risk, that the solutions that emerge are often promising instead a quick fix, you know, a short-term solution, ban this one substance and the problem is solved. And I think that's what you, you see with Alar. It, it ties into your question about neoliberalism, though, because what happens is consumers are the ones who uh, stop buying apples. Uh, apple juice sales plummet. Uh, apple juice is actually taken out of many public schools around, around the country. And Uniroyal, who is the manufacturer of this carcinogenic substance, removes it from the market. And this sends a message uh, for many mainstream environmentalists, in fact, that the market is more effective than the EPA because the EPA had been dragging its feet. The EPA had agreed that it would it sort of pass 
the uh, the threshold um, point, but it was something that had a higher degree of risk than should be allowed in the food supply. But the EPA uh, was very slow, uh, so you have this sense of bureaucratic red tape, you know, the government being ineffective. But the market solves it. New Royal removes it from from the market, uh, and um, consumer power, it said, will change the world. And you have other examples emerging: consumer boycotts uh, in terms of the tuna. Uh, the, the tuna industry and the threats to dolphins and there are other kind of cases that are very, you know, powerful, important cases. And I'm, I'm in no way trying to, to delegitimize those efforts, but I think it, it creates a, a broader kind of faith that uh, and many mainstream environmentalists endorse that, that it's the market that is quick moving, that it's the market uh, that provides a way for consumers to uh, improve the environmental future and to create sustainability. And this is all in a time of, of rising economic inequalities, uh, you know, as I said, the neo, this neoliberal context. And I think what we see happening in that period, and again, throughout our, our, into our own time, is a sense that it's through green consumerism that we can find the best way for citizens to solve environmental problems, whether it's protecting their own health, their own bodies, or uh, in some broader way, you know, solving the problem of climate change through buying hybrid vehicles, for example. Or going to Whole Foods uh, and buying, uh, you know, certain forms of, of produce. Uh, all of this is something that is is more catered to an affluent uh, uh, dem- demographic, and thus again removes the environment from questions of social justice and social relations problems that you know I, I said I've identified in an earlier period. But I think they become much more pronounced during this neoliberal time. Well, let's move up a little bit closer to the present. I mean, as we move. As you move into the 1990s and early 2000s in your book, uh, you focus on climate change. This becomes, in some ways, maybe the defining environmental issue of the past quarter quarter century. Um, and so there are a lot of media images that come forward uh, that sort of try and bring attention to this problem. But you, we can't talk about climate change and media portrayals of climate change without talking about Al Gore's inconvenient Truth, uh, which came out about a decade ago now, um, that film did a lot to bring the climate crisis to the attention, certainly of uh, of American viewers. But you find some real problems, or at least limitations, with the message that is ultimately conveyed by Inconvenient Truth and by Al Gore more generally. So, how so? What are some of those problems? Well, just to be fair to Al Gore, I, I, maybe I'll say some of the uh, what I see some of the strengths of the film first, sure. and then then talk about the problems. Uh, I mean, part of what I what I do in, is is try to appreciate how surprising this all was. I mean, you have Al Gore, uh, this this person uh, uh, who in the 2000 election was widely derided as being wooden and stiff on the campaign trail, who then goes on to deliver these PowerPoint lectures around the U.S. and elsewhere. Uh, and then he comes out with this documentary film, and, and everyone is anticipating this to be the most sleep-inducing experience that you can imagine, right? And so Jay Leno goes on a late-night uh, show to say that uh, Al Gore is, is releasing this movie. It's about global warming. Uh, and then he starts snoring uh, to, you know, sort of indicate what was likely, you know, going to be the public reception of the film. And so every film critic, after they see the film, feels compelled to begin by saying how surprised they are. They actually found this to be entertaining. They found Al Gore to be a compelling uh, leading character. Um, and so I've, it, it's quite surprising that he becomes this rock star. Uh, he's referred to as, you know, this... Uh, person who now uh, seems culturally cool uh, because of, of an inconvenient truth goes on to you know uh, be a co-winner of the uh, the Nobel Peace Prize as well as winning an Oscar for the film. Uh, all of this is quite surprising, and it's in part because of how powerful the film is at conveying the danger of climate change in ways that combine, I think, science and spectacle, facts and feelings, reason uh, and emotion, so that. Uh, throughout the film, uh, there's this, you know, effort to talk, to show, you know, very vivid scenes first of the family farm where he grew up along the, uh, in, uh, in Tennessee, uh, where he spent a lot of his childhood. And that river, uh, the Caney Fork River that's yes. at the beginning of the film and throughout, uh, provides a sense of his personal connection to nature. Uh, likewise, you see, you know, a very creative effort to take scientific data in the forms of graphs and charts but not present them as lifeless statistics, but rather 
uh, to provide kind of an emotive presentation of this data. And of course, there's the famous yeah, the, uh, cherry picker scene that people, yeah. people talk about where he's, you know, elevated uh, to sort of indicate the rising carbon emissions and what that might mean for, uh, you know, future uh, climate conditions of the planet. A.O. Scott from the New York Times, a film critic, says he's never seen an audience, uh, you know, uh, elicit gasp of horror when they see a scientific graph on the screen. <laughs> said when he was, you know, in the theater. So in all these ways, I, I think the inconvenient truth is really important for uh, making climate change more understandable in a way that it had not been before, giving a certain legitimacy to the climate movement uh, because of its effort uh, and its success, I think, in combining uh, you know, science with spectacle and reason with emotion. But I see limits in the film as well, as you know, and one of which is that um, – uh, Al Gore appeals to a, a universal sense of vulnerability and a universal sense that we're all, you know, in this together on the globe. And he has this reverential portrayal depiction of uh, whole earth images, you know, including earth rise and others. And it, like many other environmentalists who discuss climate change, he doesn't say so much about the, uh, the inequalities of environmental risk. He doesn't say so much about, uh, the ways in which these dangers are not experienced uh, in a completely universal manner. And similarly, uh, you know, and, and I'm certainly not the first to make this claim, when you talk about solutions, which really only emerge primarily uh, at the end of the film in the credits, uh, they are mostly framed in a, in a very individualist manner, uh, particularly buying light bulbs or, or light fiber bulbs. Always light bulbs. <laughs> it's always light bulbs. And, uh, you know, Michael Pollan, uh, among others, uh, in the you know popular food writer, writes this really interesting piece about the film in which he says, you know, the most depressing part of the film wasn't when Al Gore scared the hell out of me talking about the risk of global warming. It's when, at the end, he said, what I need to do is go change my light bulb. Uh, and, you know, he said the sort of disconnect between the uh, the horrible, uh, broad risk that, that Al Gore is describing to you versus the puniness of the individual action um, was, you know, really enough to, 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 to be, you know, this completely depressing, demoralizing experience for him. Gore himself, of course, becomes the target of a conservative critique uh, about his own exorbitant use of energy in his sure. Nashville home. And the response to that is uh, that Gore buys carbon offsets. Uh, and, you know, I see this, uh, again, as a, a recurring pattern within the notion of green consumerism, so that this is a way to sort of solve not only environmental problems, but personal environmental sins uh, can be, uh, you know, sort of, uh, purchased uh, through like carbon indulgences, modern exactly. Indulgences. You know, it's, it's it's very similar to that. I think, and again, though, it's a short term fix to a, to uh, a, an escalating problem. Um, part of the response to that film, though, I think, is that it does um, you know sort of legitimize concern about climate change, and the kind of activist groups that emerge after that see themselves as building on, but also uh, responding to and critiquing Al Gore. So, three fifty dot org which is how I end the book on uh, the final few pages, you know, I see as an effort to take, um, you know, some of what Al Gore has brought uh, into the public limelight, into public attention in terms of the scientific concerns over climate change, but move it away from the individualist frame, move it toward a more collective vision of environmental uh, change. Yeah, I'd like to move to that and sort of my kind of final questions and comments. I mean, one of the main things you've been talking about now and throughout our interview and comes up in the book is that these environmental images of the past half century or so, they 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 really at least a recurring theme is they e frame people as equally threatened by environmental harm and uh, we I mean we know that that's not not the case be it uh, be it with toxic waste or climate change some people are going to be more uh, affected by by those environmental ills than, than others. And then also too often, and I'd agree with you wholeheartedly here, um, such images often encourage people to take action as individual consumers rather than as citizens working for collection, collective action. Um, so I wonder, on one sense, like, do you see the situation is totally hopeless, hopeless, or how do you see other images, such as you end the book with, like, 350.org of maybe providing... Uh, an alternative model for environmental images that are maybe more progressive. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, as I was writing this book, I, I was, I, I recognized that, you know, the, a lot of the book, even though I try to, um, you know, provide some sense of the tensions within these images between, you know, what is, what I see as being productive in them, but also what I see as being limiting in them. I didn't want the book to uh, come across as sort of shutting down the sense of hope or possibility or being, you know, only framed as a critique of environmental images. So there are other examples I look at historically, like some of the efforts around solar energy in the 1970s, uh, this, this notion of Sunday, uh, an event that's everyone's forgotten about from 1978. <laughs> There's a collective vision, I think, of environmental hope that's trying to be offered around solar energy. So it's not just individualist tinkers, tinkerers, uh, offering a techno solution, but there is a sense of possibility of collective in, uh, of involvement. Um, but that tends to be marginalized and ignored, as I, as I note in the book, in terms of media coverage of that, of that issue. So I wanted to end the book, uh, in our own time by being, you know, sort of sensitive and aware of the kinds of movements that are forming now that, that do offer, I think, a different vision uh, than, than has been the dominant form. And so 350.org, Bill McKibben, uh, as one of the founders of the organization and other leaders of it, uh, actually talk about its origins as being a reaction to an inconvenient truth. Uh, the, the group is formed a year later, and they they want to offer something other than changing light bulbs as a, as the pathway to sustainability. Uh, and they do create, you know, some, they have created some very interesting uh, images that you can see on YouTube and elsewhere uh, that I think are pointing toward an alternative form of environmental action and an alternative way of, of imagining what uh, environmental citizenship means. And the, the focus in particular on the fossil fuel industry rather than on the individual consumer, which emerges in 350.org videos and in, you know, the activism around the Keystone XL pipeline and elsewhere. So that, you know, and McKibben's very explicit on this point in a Rolling Stone article. He says, we have met the enemy and he is Shell, um, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, he is us, uh, taking the, the classic Pogo quote from 1970. So I, I see in these uh, ongoing movements today, and there, there are many others uh, that one could point to, uh, an effort to, to move beyond what, it, what has been the dominant framing of environmentalism, the dominant framing of a green consumer uh, as the prime form of environmental action or the dominant form of environmental citizenship. And so uh, I, I certainly see those movements as offering, you know, as you say, sort of more promise or more progressive possibility than has been within within the mainstream. But uh, I, still, I think if, if you look at sort of the dominant images we are we, we are met with every day, whether it be, you know, in the mass media news coverage of issues or in corporate advertising and, and efforts to sort of appropriate environmental values, a lot of it is still framed around either sudden spectacle or uh, around uh, short-term solution in the form of green consumerism. And it's uh, still difficult in mainstream media coverage to get see much uh, attention to systemic factors, to long term structural issues, or to uh, you know sort of a broader vision of, of environmental change uh, in, a, in a more collective manner. Well, uh, Finus, I've really enjoyed our conversation, but I think I'm going to have to bring it to a close uh, there. So thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, so New Books in Geography listeners, we've been talking with Finus Dunaway. Uh, his new book, Seeing Green, The Use and Abuse of American Environmental Images, was just published in the past few months by University of Chicago Press. Uh, it's a great read, as well as richly illustrated with many of these images that we've been talking about today, as well as others. So thank you again, Finus, for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Bob. I really enjoyed it.